the earth, what we all have in common. We enjoy everything it gives us, except its problems. In this podcast, we will share the difficult situations that the earth faces day by day, bringing you closer to scientists, activists, environmentalists, photographers, among other important figures, so that we can all see and understand the world from a new perspective. I am Ferba Surto. I'm Hasa Lazar. I am Alondra Chavez. We are Wotion, and you are listening to The Earth Talk. Welcome to the first episode of The Earth Talk. We are so glad to start this podcast with a very special guest, Captain Paul Watson. He is a marine wildlife conservation interventor and environmental activist who founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, an international non-profit marine wildlife conservation organization. Established in 1977, their mission is to end the destruction of habitat and the slaughter of wildlife in the world's oceans in order to conserve and protect ecosystems and species. They use innovative direct action tactics to investigate, document, and take action when necessary to expose and confront illegal activities on the high seas. By safeguarding the biodiversity of our delicately balanced ocean ecosystems, Sea Shepherd works to ensure their survival for future generations. Welcome to the Air Talk, Captain. We're glad to have you on board. It's really fascinating what you have done for the conservation of marine wildlife and the accomplishments you have achieved. With starting and founding a conservation society and then creating this unique approach to ocean conservation. So we are really excited to start this podcast with you and having our listeners learn from your experience. For anyone who is not familiar with what you do, could you tell us what Sea Shepherd does? Well, I established uh, Sea Shepherd in 1977 as an interventionist organization, specifically an anti-poaching group, and uh, with a, a unique approach, which I call aggressive nonviolence. And uh, and for after 42 years, we've never injured anybody, and we've never sustained an injury, but we've shut down literally hundreds of illegal activities. And in the last uh, 10 years, we've developed a new approach, which is a partnership with various government agencies where we provide volunteers resources and they uh, provide the enforcement or the authority to intervene. This is in the waters of the territorial waters of those particular nations. Outside of uh, territorial waters, and we operate uh, in accordance or the guidelines of the uh, United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for non-government organizations and individuals to intervene to uphold international conservation law. Everything that you just said and, well, the impacts you have accomplished along the years have been crucial for the conservation of wildlife all around the world. What motivated you to initiate this movement? I was one of the co-founders of the uh, Greenpeace uh, Foundation originally, and I left Greenpeace in 77 because I, you know, I wasn't very happy with the protest part of it. I think protesting is very submissive, you know, it's basically hanging banners and taking pictures. I, I wanted to directly intervene and take a more aggressive approach, and so I Sea Shepherd allows me to, to do that. And the great thing about it is what was started as an organization is now a global movement, and movements are stronger than organizations. And we're in about 42 different countries. And, uh, you know, because I've always said you can shut down an individual, you can stop an, an organization, but you can't, you can't stop a movement. Mm -hmm. 
So you have this unique theme for Sea Shepherd, which is a pirate theme. What's the story behind it? Well, back in the 90s, uh, the people we were opposing, actually the criminals, <laughs> would call us everything from eco-terrorists to pirates. So, uh, you know, I used to study Aikido, and the, the basis of Aikido as a martial art is to take what is thrown at you and uh, use it to your advantage. So if they want to call us pirates, well, then we'll be pirates. And uh, so uh, we just adapted that and uh, adapted our own Jolly Roger. And uh, the flag actually has a, a meaning. You know, the black uh, represents the extinction of species and destruction of, uh, of ecosystems. And the skull represents that this is caused by humanity. Uh, the yin-yang of the dolphin and the whale in the skull says that harmony is to be found in the sea and we can learn from other species. And the trident is aggression. The shepherd staff is protection. So that's aggressive nonviolence. And so that uh, symbolizes what we, what we do. Also, uh, you know, the one thing about pirates traditionally is they got things done. You know, they cut through all the red tape and got things done. And the history of piracy, uh, you know, tends to ignore the fact that there were a lot of very positive things about it, like the fact that the crews were democratically elected, they elected the captains, that uh, they didn't discriminate against race or gender. There were women pirates. There were, And when Blackbeard used to uh, attack slave ships, he would release the slaves and uh, give them a choice, uh, go ashore or join my crew. And if they joined the crew, they could rise to the highest level of confidence. And, um, you know, of course, the one thing people say, well, they were, they were thieves and robbers. And yes, they were. They stole from the Spaniards who stole the gold from the Aztecs. So are you really a thief if you're stealing the gold from the people who stole it from the first place? <laughs> I think they're just recovering. Well, that's really interesting, but I think it can be a little hypocritical, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, I always say, you know, uh, there's a lot to learn from pirates. And some of the great heroes of uh, maritime heroes of all time were pirates. John Paul Jones, the founder of the U.S. and the Russian Navy, founded both navies, uh, was a pirate, as were Sir Walter Raleigh and Sir... Uh, you know, Francis Drake and Robert Sacouf for France, who was given the Legion of Honor for what he did. Uh, Jean Lapite, who helped defend New Orleans. Uh, uh, they were all pirates, but all, all, but all heroes because they got things done. In fact, it was Henry Morgan who shut down piracy in the Caribbean. He didn't become a real pirate until they made him governor of Jamaica. <laughs> so what you need, it's a pirate to fight another pirate. Yeah, so we always refer to ourselves as good pirates in pursuit of, of pirates' uh, greed. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very impressive backstory of the main theme of Sea Shepherd, and I think you have done a very interesting job on maintaining this theme. Now, when talking about Sea Shepherd's fleet, do they have any eco-friendly characteristics? You know, of course, we're uh, we're very concerned about uh, doing things. Uh, where we're not going to harm the environment. So we're a lot of precautions taken there. But I think most importantly is the ships are all run as vegan vessels uh, and have been for some time because, uh, you know, the meat production is one of the biggest sources of uh, uh, groundwater pollution and dead zones in the ocean and one of the biggest sources of, uh, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And uh, so we're trying to set an example by, uh, by doing that. And uh, so, you know, our main concern is, is conservation and protection of species and upholding international conservation law. But we're also, of course, very concerned about uh, environmental issues, everything from acidification to ocean plastic. We, we pull out thousands of uh, tons of plastic out of the ocean every year. 
This last year, we cleaned up one of the major northern beaches, untouched beaches up in uh, northern Australia. We took 40 tons of uh, marine debris off the Cocos Island, off the coast of Costa Rica. Uh, and we have beach cleanups and beaches in about 30 countries around the world. Yes, I think it's very considerate from Sea Shepherd to implement these kind of practices with the fleet you constantly use. And have in mind not just one, but all of the ocean's problems. But talking about a little bit of Sea Shepherd's history, it has been active for 43 years now. What would you say are some challenges the organization has faced along the years? Well, the biggest challenge, of course, is dealing with government bureaucracy. And, but we've learned to become pretty good at dealing with that. Uh, usually just agree with them and do what we're going to do. But, uh, but also the, the unique thing is that uh, I don't think that any other non-government organization has actually uh, developed uh, a campaign of mutual cooperation with these governments. So right now we're uh, in partnership with numerous African countries, numerous Latin American countries. And uh, we carry their, you know, we don't carry weapons. Uh, sea Shepherd doesn't have weapons, but we do now carry uh, authorities who are armed for, and that enables us to do the boardings and the confiscations of poaching vessels uh, in, the, in the waters of the countries that we're, we're working with. In Mexico, where we've got a really, a lot, well, now we're entering the seventh year of our partnership with the Mexican uh, government, various government agencies, plus the Mexican Navy to protect the endangered Vaquita in the Vaquita Refuge. And that's working out really well. Uh, again, we can provide the resources, uh, the Navy provides the authority. And uh, we've managed to pull about 1,200 uh, illegal nets from the Vaquita Refuge. And I think that uh, if it wasn't for the last seven years of us being there, the Vaquita would now be extinct. So I think that's made a, a major difference. So you're constantly working with rangers, right? Yes, we work with rangers and the, with military, like the Navy, with rangers and various authorities, yes. Well, the risks you have to take in order to accomplish Sea Shepherd's goals can be extremely high and you and all your crew take them anyway. What drives you to do that? I don't see anything unusual about taking those risks. Uh, you know, uh, one of the questions I've always asked the crew members when they come on board, uh, are you willing to risk your life to protect a whale? And if they say no, then we don't take them, you know. We want people who are willing to risk their life to save a whale. And when people say, well, that's asking an awful lot from to ask a young person to risk their life to save a whale. But in our society, we ask young people to risk their life, in fact, to kill people for real estate, flags, religion, and every other thing. I think it's a far more noble pursuit to take that risk to protect an endangered species or a threatened habitat. So uh, I don't see anything unusual about that. But again, I'm proud of the fact that in 42 years, we've never caused a single injury and we've not had any injuries to our own crew during that en entire time. And for the fact that we're operating, literally operating, you know, dozens of ships, uh, that, that safety record is actually really good because, you know, I, I, uh, when I served in the Canadian Coast Guard and the Norwegian Merchant Marine, we uh, had constantly had injuries and we had people killed. Uh, so, you know, it's a dangerous environment in of itself. We go to very hostile areas and everything. But I think one of the, fa the fact that our crews are predominantly uh, inexperienced and amateurs means that uh, they're much more cautious and we're much more cautious about that. So we don't take unnecessary, unnecessary risks in that regard. Uh, but there are risks, of course, that are being, being taken. 
doing this kind of tactics can come with some risk because you are confronting illegal activities. And I think that going into the ocean with authorities is a very responsible way to do it instead of carrying around your own weapon. But now, Captain, could you tell us, in all of these years, what has been the most shocking thing you have experienced while working at Sea Shepherd? So that's a hard question to answer because we've been in so many situations where we've seen uh, atrocities, whether, you know, it's the clubbing of seal pups uh, in Canada uh, to, you know, this, the cutting off of uh, shark fins uh, well, and throwing the live animals back into the, into the ocean. Uh, just, uh, I mean, there's a, what we do to uh, uh, animals in the sea would never be really accepted on land. You know, uh, there's no difference between a bluefin tuna and a cheetah. Uh, they're both predators. One's an aquatic predator, and one's uh, one's a land-based predator. One's the fastest animal on the land, and the other's the fastest animal in the ocean. Um, in fact, in Africa, we are always accusing people, uh, rightfully so, if they of killing giraffe and elephant and chimpanzees, and we say that that that's bushmeat, and we condemn it. But there's no, you know, bluefin tuna and other species like that are also bushmeat. <laughs> we just have it's just an acceptable form of it. Uh, because we're doing it and not the Africans are, are doing it. See, humans have an incredible ability to justify what they do uh, in every context. So it's good for us to do it, but not good for you, is pretty much the attitude that uh, many, well, throughout the world, really, that's the history of our species. I can't imagine how many stressful and hard situations Sea Shepherd has been through, but I think it's part of what you do, and I find it very brave that even though all of these situations have happened, Sea Shepherd keeps going, and I like that it it doesn't stop you. So, yeah, I think at the end it's all it's all worth it. Um, now, as we know. We are living a situation never seen before, and it is having consequences in all industries. Some are beneficial and others are not. But how has the pandemic affected Sea Shepherd? Well, the present pandemic, uh, of course, has an effect. Uh, some of our ships can't get out of port. Our vessel, the Ocean Warrior, has been restricted to Singapore since February, and I don't think we get out until October because of Singaporean rules and that. Uh, our vessels are still restricted in Mexico, but that should be released soon. Uh, two of our larger vessels are now have been released and are on patrol in Western Africa in waters. So it has caused some problems. And we have to, of course, uh, adhere to strict uh, regulations prior, like for prior to boarding the, uh, the vessels of Bob Barker and the Sam Simon in uh, Las Palmas and the Canary Islands. Uh, the crews had to quarantine themselves in hotels for, for um, two, two weeks prior to joining it. But now that they're at sea, everything's safe because there's no risk of contamination. You know, while, while we're out, while doing the patrols for the next few few months, but it means they can't go ashore and they, you know, they can't mingle with the with people in in the ports and that. So there there are significant changes. I'm not surprised by the current situation. In fact, I've been writing about it for 20 years. Uh, and uh, both emerging uh, viruses caused from dynamic uh, transmissions, which are a direct result of diminishment of ecosystems and diminishment of species. And we're going to see more and more of that. You know, so, well, we've seen the MERS and SARS and hantavirus and West Nile, Nile fever. And those things were relatively minor compared to what's happening right now. But COVID-19 is going to be relatively minor to what's coming down the road. Uh, because in, a, in addition to more zoonotic transmissions, we're going to have, uh, there's a release already of uh, pathogens which have been locked up in the permafrost for 40, 50,000 years. Uh, 
And I don't think people really understand the nature of viruses. And viruses overall are a very positive thing. Every species has a virus associated or group of viruses, and they're absolutely essential for our survival. But the problem is, uh, so there's literally hundreds of millions of viruses. But the problem is, is that when you diminish a species or a habitat, you create a situation where the virus no longer has a host or the host has been diminished. And the virus now is going to uh, trans, trans, transmit to another species. And humans, there's 8 billion of us. So it's a pretty attractive, <laughs> we're a pretty attractive host. It's not in the nature of a virus to kill its host. Um, but it has to go through a lot of co-adaptations, you know, in order to both the host and the virus have to find a way to coexist. Unfortunately, that's bad news for the host because it kills a lot of people in the process, or a lot of hosts or animals, too, are affected by this. But, you know, almost all the viruses that we have, I mean, the bad ones, came from animals. You know, the common cold, which is a coronavirus, came from horses. Uh, MERS came from camels, and uh, flu came from pigs and birds and that. And so uh, we're going to see more and more of that, unfortunately. So we could say that if we didn't change our ways of living and our actions with animals, the spread of viruses will continue and will become something common. Yes, we have to learn to live in harmony with all these other species. I mean, factory farms are just big petri dishes for breeding disease. You know, there's so many, so many problems that are associated with it. Uh, but if we don't learn to live with har in harmony with other species, then our future is not going to be very uh, positive. Uh, you know, there's three basic laws of ecology. The law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. The law of interdependence, that all species are interdependent with each other. And the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity. And right now, we're stealing, at an incredible rate, we're stealing the carrying capacity of other species, which causes diminishment in both diversity and interdependence. And that's uh, as a recipe for a disaster. And, and human beings are primarily anthropocentric, which means that we're only concerned about what we're concerned about. We, we don't see that we're part of everything. We're, we see ourselves as separate of everything. I mean, the average person is completely uh, in the dark about the fact that phytoplankton in the ocean is, is essential for our survival. It provides 70% of the oxygen we breathe. And if phytoplankton uh, it disappears, we do too. We don't live on a planet without phytoplankton. It's it's a foundation of, of life for all life on this planet. And uh, but most people don't think about it. I like to explain it this way: uh, the uh, the planet is a spaceship, and it's on a true incredible journey around the Milky Way galaxy. And every spaceship has a life support system, and that life support system provides the oxygen what we breathe and regulates climate and temperature, provides food. And that life support system is run by a crew, a crew of species, but not us. We're the we're the passengers. We're having a great time entertaining ourselves, but what we're doing is killing off crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill before the machinery begins to break down. And when that breaks down, then it all falls apart. So we have to learn to uh, protect these other species. We don't live on this planet without worms and bees and trees and fish. We absolutely need them. Uh, they don't need us, but we need them. So in a way, they're more important than we are. Ecologically, they're certainly far more important than we are. But that's very difficult for the anthropocentric mind to understand because, well, it's all about us, really. We're all, we're the only thing. That, we're so important that every single religion on this planet places us at the center of creation. And, you know, and that, I think, is our undoing. Anthropocentrism has to be replaced by 
biocentrism, which is pretty much the uh, philosophy of a lot of indigenous cultures, understanding that we're all our, all these species are our relatives and that we're, li- we're related. Yes, as you said, we tend to put the human race as the most important thing because sometimes we are selfish in a lot of ways, especially when we talk about animals and the environment. But centering in the results COVID-19 has provoked what are the environmental and economic consequences the pandemic has caused? Uh, well, actually, there's a lot of positive things of the pandemic. Pandemic. One of them is that a lot of uh, ecosystems are untouched, uh, and there's a lot of and there's recovery happening. Uh, I mean, it might just be a temporary thing, but it's also I think it's a it's a good shock to uh, civilization as we know it. Uh, like you know, here's a problem, and it's going to get worse unless we uh, unless we address it. Uh, so. I guess it's a good, educationally, it's probably a good thing. Um, but who knows where the, you know, where it's heading to. I mean, I don't think they're going to develop a vaccine for it because it's a coronavirus and uh, there's never been a vaccine developed for a coronavirus. I mean, there's no vaccine for the common cold. Uh, so, well, I mean, but they could surprise us. I don't know. But even so, it, it's just to be a temporary relief from, uh, you know, what's coming down the road. So really, I think overall, we have to look at if we're going to address this in a positive manner is changing our lifestyles to learn to uh, to respect and live in harmony with all these other species and protect uh, major ecosystems. Has the illegal activities stopped because of the sanitary measures of COVID-19? Some of our activities have uh, been stopped, but uh, with some of them are still continuing to go on. Uh, you know, once we're at sea, we're fine and, uh, you know, the, it really doesn't affect us. But uh, the, getting the ships out of port has been a bit of a problem because of the restrictions uh, uh, that are in place, especially in, uh, in ports. I mean, the very word quarantine actually originated with, uh, with ships because uh, it means 40 days. Uh, and when the bubonic plague happened in 1346 in Europe, uh, they, they realized that the only way they were going to deal with this, that every ship that came to every port had to be uh, quarantined for 40 days. And that's eventually what, which actually brought the Black Plague under, under control. Uh, so, you know, the transmission of viruses, especially in an age of uh, air travel and everything like this, is at an incredible rate. I mean, it took the bubonic plague well, three years to actually go across Europe, but it's only taken three months to go across the world today. It's real difficult for a government to not know what is happening in their country. They do know everything that is going on, but still don't do much to stop all of these illegal activities. Does this mean that there is a lack of will to stop these acts, or are there greater interests that allows them to continue with their operations? Well, the governments of the world certainly know what the problem is, but there is a lack of economic and political motivation to do anything about it. It just simply isn't their interest. Our entire economic system is based on short-term investment for for short-term gain. We want to get the profits as quickly as we can, and we really don't look into the future. Our species doesn't have much of an ability to look into the future, or, and, we, and we have uh, limited uh, abilities to remember how things were. Uh, things change and we forget all about it. Species go extinct and we forgot they were ever there. Uh, and we adapt. Another problem is our ability to adapt to diminishment. As things become diminishment, we just sort of accept it. I mean, if this is 1965 and I were to tell you that in 
30, 40 years, you'd be buying water in plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline. You look at me like I'm some sort of nutcase. Nobody's going to do that, but we adapted to it. And now we're doing that with almost everything else, adapting to diminishment. But you can only adapt so far until you run out of things to adapt to. Did you believe this pandemic will help change the regulations some countries have for these types of practices or activities? Well, I would hope so, but um, you know, it had pandemics in the past have certainly changed things. 1918, 1920, flu pandemic, the bubonic plague, certainly. Uh, so we should, that, that remains to be seen. But um, you know, the problem is that the large, powerful industrial countries, the United States being a good example of that, it's not in their interest. It's you know, they, it, it gets in the way of their most important uh, considerations, which is the economy. <laughs> And when you put the economy over ecology then you're, you're not going to solve the problem. Well, also, thanks to C. Sherbrooke's intervention, humpback whales' population has increased in recent years. As an organization, which is your next goal? Well, right now we're no longer an organization, we're a movement. So when you say, what is our next goal? It's literally hundreds of goals because we have uh, individuals all over the world who are doing different things, whether cleaning beaches in northern Australia to uh, going after uh, poachers in, in the waters off of Sicily to, uh, you know, protecting turtles on the island of Mayotte between Madagascar and Mozambique to uh, patrolling for anti-poaching patrols, trying to stop the killing of pilot whales in the Faroe Islands, uh, stopping the killing of dolphins in the Bay of Biscay. Uh, I literally, I can't even keep count of the actual campaigns that we're, we're doing. I know a couple of years ago, I got a report that says Sea Shepherd uh, saved these turtles in Nicaragua. Sea Shepherd Nicaragua saved these turtles. And I'm going, we have a, I didn't even know we had a group in Nicaragua. So, but this is exactly what um, I've always wanted because that's the only thing that's going to make change. It's not going to come from me as uh, one person or it's not going to come from a dozen people. It's got to, it's got to come from literally thousands of people address, addressing thousands of issues. And I've always tried to instill to people that uh, you can change the world by yourself. One person has that ability to do that. Look what Jane Goodall has done and what uh, Diane Fossey say, the mountain gorillas. Uh, look what Greta Thunberg is doing. Uh, so you just have to have the, uh, the confidence to go forward and do it and not be deterred by, by criticism. And all you have to do is harness your passion to uh, courage and imagination and, and you can move forward. And it doesn't matter whether your approach is litigation or education or legislation or direct action. You do what you're good at and uh, try and focus that on to making the world a better place. So now going back to what you just said, what is something we can all do that would help these animals? Well, like I said, again, you have to, what are you, what are you passionate about? Is there a particular species you're passionate about? Is there a particular ecosystem that you're passionate about? And then you find, use your imagination to find ways to, uh, to address that. And I always say to people, uh, you know, I get calls all the time saying, what are you going to do about this? Or what are you going to do about that? And my answer is, what are you going to do about it? You know, I get a call uh, years ago from a guy in Scotland and he says, they're killing seals over here in the Orkney Islands. What are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I'm on the West Coast of North America and you're in Scotland. So my question is, what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, what can I do about it? But anyway, we helped him organize the Sea Shepherd Group. And he went to the islands and they disrupted the seal killing and they raised so much fuss and they got arrested and they did all sorts of things. But we raised enough money to buy that island where the seals were being killed, which we now own. And it's a seal sanctuary. 
So, and that all came from one guy saying, well, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, change relies within each of us. So if someone wanted to be part of this movement, what should they do? Well, on our website, it tells you how to apply if you want to be a crew member on, on the ships and uh, you know, put in a, an application to be a volunteer crew member. Or also, we have volunteers who just work on shore on land-based projects. And other than that, people who support us financially. But uh, we try to give an opportunity to as many people as possible to be involved in, in, in some way. And uh, so right now, I think we, uh, well, at any given moment now, we have about 200, 250 volunteers on the ships in total. And also we have crews on beaches, like in Mayotte, protecting turtles or picking up plastic in Arnhem in Northern Australia. Uh, so there's a lot of projects, so there's a lot of room for people to be involved and uh, to be connected to that. Yeah, change relies within each of us. So if someone wanted to be part of this movement, what should they do? Well, for our campaigns, uh, you know, of course, legally, we can't have anybody under 18, but mm -hmm. on Campaigns, yes, under 18 is fine, you know, and uh, uh, you know the support groups and things like that. But to actually be on the ship, you have to be uh, you have to be 18. That's for legal reasons. There's no uh, age limit on the upper end. Uh, I think the oldest crew member we had was a woman from England who was 87. Uh, so it's not really, uh, you know, we, we want to try and give everybody a chance to be involved. Um, you know, we've been criticized in the past because our crew are not professionals, but I, I never wanted professionals because pro, pro, professionals don't have the, uh, the passion to get where you need to go and do what you need to do. And uh, so I find that people who are professionals tend to be more, more of a problem than anything else. And I'm not the first to do it. In 1911, when Ernest Shackleton was going to Antarctica, you know, the London Times criticized him because his crew were not professionals. He says, I don't want professionals. I need to get where I'm going and they're not going to help me. Yes, completely. So what you need is passionate people who really cares about what Sea Shepherd does and the changes you want to accomplish. Because, you know, at the end, if you want to see change, it's better to go ahead and figure out how to achieve it yourself rather than relying on that responsibility to someone else. That's true. The passion of people is more important than, than anything else. If you look at every social revolution, in history it was always carried forth by the passion of individuals you know, slavery wasn't ended by governments it was ended by people like wilberforce and douglas women didn't get the right to vote because of governments they got the right to vote because they went out onto the streets and got arrested and got beaten up and got jailed and everything else you know they had to pay for it and they won and uh, the problem with governments is they tend to take credit for what people do but they don't actually do anything Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, was the greatest opponent to the women's right to vote. There was over 10 years. He was their big opponent. But he signs the bill because they eventually won. And, of course, now people say, oh, Woodrow Wilson gave women the right to vote. No, he didn't. He just signed the bill. <laughs> But he gets the credit. So the government takes the credit for what people do. And, again, uh, you know, his civil rights movement, uh, any movement, really, it's always, it's always that kind of passion that wins the day. Governments cause problems. They don't solve problems. And well, finally, is there any message you would like to give our audience? Well, the one message I'm trying to get across and get everybody to understand is, uh, is very simple. If the ocean dies, well, we all die. We don't live on this planet with a dead ocean. So uh, it's absolutely essential. Also, an another idea that I try to get across is what is the ocean? 
because people say sometimes, well, I don't even live anywhere near the ocean. What's this got to do with me? Well, the fact is you do live near the ocean where you live. You are the ocean. Because what is the ocean? It is water in continuous circulation. And sometimes it's in the sea, and sometimes it's in ice, and sometimes it's underground, and sometimes it's in the cloud and the atmosphere, and sometimes it's in the cells of every plant and animal on the planet. It's constantly in motion. So the water in your body right now is once in ice, once underground, once in the sea, once once was pissed by a dinosaur, you know? <laughs> it's constantly being recirculated and everything like that. So in that respect, we are the ocean. And what that means is that every part of it that is impacted impacts every other part. It's a and uh, so that's a, an idea that I like to get across. Captain, thank you for that message. We really appreciate it. And also thank you so much for your time and for everything you have shared with us today. It was very interesting and we learned along the way very helpful information that we also hope our listeners learn as much as we did. Thank you so much again. It was a pleasure to have you in our first episode of The Air Talk. We would like to invite people that are listening to check out Sea Shepherd's social media. And if you want, you can roll in one of their programs or look up for more information at seashepherd.org. And on Instagram, you can find Captain Watson as Captain Paul Watson and his foundation as Sea Shepherd. Remember to follow us for more at Ocean underscore MX. Thank you so much for listening this first episode. Stay tuned for more. This is The Air Talk. <laughs>